0: Today is August 26, 2014, and this is episode 1413 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I'm going to continue on a series I started last week with you guys. I did a show last week called 12 Herbs Every Survivalist Should Grow. Today's show is called 12 More Herbs Every Survivalist Should Grow, and there might even be a 12 more, more herbs. I don't know what we'll actually call it, but there might be one more because I'm sure I'm going to hear from people today. I can't believe in those two shows you didn't use my favorite herb and that is whatever because there's really hundreds of options when it comes to growing herbs, but I've put together another list of 12 today. Stuff that's easy to grow, easy to use, easy to make part of your life. Uh, stuff that has culinary aspects and medicinal aspects. Tough, hardy stuff that will grow just about anywhere, and maybe I'll tell you some things about it that you didn't know uh, today. That's my hope, anyway. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is the source of the other precious metals, copper, brass, and lead. Yep, yep. BulkAmmo.com, the place I go for my large ammo purchases, specifically of common calibers, A place I think you should go to. Great service, great pricing, great availability, and lightning fast shipping. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. And remember, they do have a discount for you if you are buying a significant quantity in the MSB. You can go in there and find that discount so you can save some money on an already great priced item. And uh, if you're buying from Bulk Ammo, you're probably buying a significant quantity. That's why you would go to a place like Bulk Ammo. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. When there were no sponsors, there was Vic Montala going, Dude, let me sponsor the show. And me going, Hold on, man. Like, well, like 800 people listening right now. And I don't know how to do this yet. Give me some time. And he said, Well, when you're ready, I'll still be there waiting to sponsor you. That happened. Uh, a few months later, I had things up to about 2, 2,000, listeners. I launched the Member Support Brigade, and uh, Vic came in immediately as a sponsor, and soon after is our first uh, supporting vendor of the Member Support Brigade. He has a great program there. It's called the Discount Buyer's Club. It's $49 lifetime membership. Save on the stuff he sells for the rest of your life, but if you're an MSB member, you get it for free. It makes your first year of the Member Support Brigade a buck. When it really comes down to it. He's been doing that now for over five years. And uh, we're really glad to have him on board with us as a sponsor. Safe Castle Royal. Check him out for everything for your prepping needs. From guns to gardens. Tactical to practical. And everything in between. Next up, let us speak of the year. that was the episode 1413. Here's a nation you don't hear much about, really. Well, you hear about the two pieces of it that we have effectively split in half, and how one side is completely evil, the devil, and ready to kill us all. Though I don't believe that to be the case. Anyway, I'd like to tell you today a little bit about Korea and the proud history of the Korean nation. The world's longest-lived dynasty has been keeping a diary, and thus the longest continuous historical record of the Korean people. The Joseon dynasty began long before this, but the keeping of the diary, or annal will begin this year. It will continue until 1865 and make up 1893 volumes. Two volumes will be suspect, though. Japanese censorship will place doubt in the accuracy of the volumes documenting those times, so the volumes are usually not included in the set. The diary is considered a national treasure of the Korean nation, and it currently is available on the Internet in Korean. Translating it into English began in 2014, this year. Uh, Alex says, Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com, I mentioned once before that Japan and Korea do not get along. That is partly due to Japanese occupation of Korea in the 20th century. The Japanese were not popular in Korea nor in China at the time. This is an understatement, actually. Well, I think you have to think about the time and you have to think about the form of governments going on in these societies it was very much an, an imperial type of government, some an empire, an emperor, or uh, you know the Mongols had the way they ran things was pretty similar to an emperor type situation, where you have a leader who claims absolute authority over his people, and to maintain that authority, we think of the empire, all you know, emperors always just like. I find your lack of faith disturbing and choking you out with the power of the force or something like that. But see, it's not not the way an empire works. See, when you're an emperor and you're running a nation of millions of people, if they all decide at the same time, we've had enough of your shit, they kill you. And that's just how it works. And there's a body count issue there. So the emperor is not just seen as all-powerful, but the source of all things. That means that when you don't have shit, guess what? It's his fault. Yep. So if you want to be basically a god on earth, which is how most of these people portrayed themselves, then you have to look after your children, so to speak. And when you live in these small areas, not so much China, but you think of Korea, you think of Vietnam, you think of these other places like this in the area, you realize that there's always going to be some resources that are short so when you live on an island like Japan or a, a peninsula like Korea, and you've got the Chinese to your north that are maybe more powerful than you, um, and you need more stuff, you got to go somewhere and get it. And if you look at the whole history of the world, really, but specifically if you look at this time in the the Asian area, it's one of conquest. One thug going out to another group of thugs and making the the second group of thugs pay the first group of thugs a tribute. And then that money can be used to acquire goods and services. You might even make them pay you a tribute and then turn around and buy shit from them. I mean, this was considered the order of business at the time. Basically, what I'm telling you is governments of the time were legitimized mafia that stole from each other and then did business with each other under the auspices of providing protection, resources, and needs to their people. In other words, it was just like today, only it was a few hundred years ago and things were different and the marketing was different. But in the end, it's the same system. Take from those you can take from, redistribute to those you need to keep happy, Use force and power when all other means of coercion fail. That's government. Welcome to it. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, before we get into the herbal stuff today, remember, you can join the Member Support Brigade. You'll support the work we do here at the Survival Podcast, but it's not a donation. You get a really great return of investment. If you're buying things in the personal preparedness, personal liberty, homesteading, guns, gardens and everything in between world, I've got so many discounts in you for there for the for in there for you, your membership will more than pay for itself. So it does pay you back. Additionally, if you're military, law enforcement, peace corps or first responders like an EMT, paramedic or firefighter, you qualify for a discount on an already great priced product. Email me with service discount in the subject line and one or two sentences about your service. And I will get back to you with a discount code. Do that before, not after you join. And remember, it's for prior and active duty. So if you are prior service for law enforcement, paramedic, anything like that, you qualify. Alright, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Kind of why I'm doing this without going and rehashing everything I said in episode 1410 is that I believe that there's a large segment of this audience that wants to live healthier, that wants to have something you know, that they can provide for for themselves on their property, but yet either they have a really small piece of land or they just don't have the time or desire to be a quote-unquote gardener. That it would be great if they could do something, but they don't want to have ten raised beds and a bunch of crops and be canning tomatoes and taking care of chickens and all that crap, but they're open to doing something. And I think probably the best starting place for people like that, either with time restrictions, slot size restrictions, or just desire restrictions. I only have so much to dedicate to each part of my life, and this agricultural kind of permacultural thing, I just that's not my deal. Uh, I think that herbs is the place to go for that, because most people around their house have little islands around trees and in those little islands are flowers and bushes and boxwoods and all kinds of stuff that you do have to water you have to provide some level of fertility for you have to provide some maintenance on rake leaves you know cut them prune them whatever keep the shape right all this stuff and every place you don't have one of those little islands you generally have this stuff called grass and that requires water and fertilizer and mowing and edging and blowing and ugh, right? So everything you do to increase those little islands reduces the maintenance on your grass. good layer of sheet mulch, and you can work one weekend instead of every weekend all summer long. That's the way I look at it, even if you are just an urbanite that's happy with the urbanite world and just wants a nicely landscaped yard, herbs fit right into it. And that allows you to do things like one of the herbs we'll talk about today is rosemary. So you strip off some rosemary needles, throw them on a paper plate at the beginning of the week, the end of the week, they're nice and dried. Rosemary we'll get to when we get to it. But it's one of the herbs I think actually works better dried than fresh. And you make some roasted rosemary potatoes with a little bit of garlic. Garlic came from last week where you pulled a bulb out. And now you've done something from your property. You've added a lot of nutritional value more than you might think you've definitely improved the flavor even if you bought the potato from a store or from a local provider or what have you without actually having to grow the potato and that's the way to think about this or you know it'd be great if everybody went fishing and caught trout but you know where you live depends on whether or not you're going to be catching a lot of trout I don't have a lot of trout here so I might have to buy a, a uh, you know a, an organically raised trout uh, but I can put fresh dill sprigs on it and I can grow dill. And once I get dill growing, I can produce so much dill seed. And I'll talk about what you can do with the seed other than plant it. But I can have big bags of dill seed every year and just throw it around anywhere where I want dill. Plant 20 times more than I need and some of it will grow. If I do that for a couple of years, I'll have a point where the dill just begins to reseed itself. And I, I can't even get rid of it if I want to. And it's there. And I can use it for things. And this is the easy way, right, to, to bring some level of food production medicine, um, and things that just actually improve the quality of your life into your property without going whole hog on gardening or permaculture. If you garden in permaculture, then you know what? This is just going to fit right in. So that's why I came up with this series. Um, I want to start out with one of my favorite things to grow. I see a lot of people doing a lot to try to grow citrus in climates where citrus doesn't grow. And one of the ones they really like to try to go, grow is lemons. And when you think about what lemons do from a cooking standpoint, lemon on fish, uh, lemonade, lemon in tea, you can see why people would want to grow a lemon. Um, unlike lime, you can grow kefir lime. In a pot, just a little tree. Bring it inside, and you don't really care if it produces a lot of limes because you can use the leaves off of it and get a lot of lime flavor. Lemon leaves don't really give you that, right? So last week we talked about lemongrass, and lemongrass is something those of us in the South we mulch it heavily, uh, what have you. It'll it'll return as a perennial uh, and get bigger and bigger every year, even in climates where the book says it won't work. But As you move into, like, zone 7, zone 6, it's hard to keep it going, and as you get any colder than that, it's it's gone. Lemon balm, as a member of the mint family, will grow anywhere mint will, which is, for most of us, no problem to be able to grow lemon balm. In fact, if we don't control lemon balm, like many mints, it begins to run, and it ends up all over the flipping place. It's used in a lot of landscaping as a ground cover because it smells like lemons. It smells a little minty, but more lemony and has a lemon flavor and it, it, it so if it's somewhere where it touches rocks or whatever you have a nice odor that comes off and it gets big flowers on it by its second year um it is really awesome and it has a lot of medicinal uses i don't think people realize because it's such a common easy thing people think all the medicinal stuff is exotic it is actually good for treating and soothing animal bites mosquito bites sores and even herpes, so I don't have herpes. Do you ever get a cold sore? <laughs> right. um, the nectar uh, can be put and mixed with water, uh, and also by by making a, like a a big mash out of the leaves and the flowers together, and soaking it in water, uh, and then using that, it can be used for fevers, for colds and cough, for headaches, for upset upset stomach, and it's as a tea. It's really good for insomnia. So. I mean, if you just think about all the things in your medicine chest, right, that that one plant replaces, then you almost wonder why, like, this isn't growing everywhere. And it actually has some other uses as well from more of a culinary perspective. I mentioned it's good for insomnia, but if you actually make a really concentrated tea, and then mix that tea. So, I mean, like a stronger tea than you would normally make, about two parts of tea to one part honey and, uh, store that in the refrigerator. It is almost a knockout for kids. A teaspoon of that before bed. So it's, it's really cool with that. It's actually really good on fruit salads. You know, a lot of times people make a fruit salad, they squeeze a little lemon juice on it and that does help it not turn brown and oxidize. This won't do that. But the lemon flavor is nice as well, so the leaves chopped up and spread on fruit salad is really, really good. You could use part lemon balm and part um, regular mint, too. A lot of people do mint with their uh, fruit salads, and it's pretty damn good. It makes just a killer lemon-flavored vinegar for cooking and using in, in other foods. So what you want to do is use – I like to use apple cider vinegar with this. And take a jar, doesn't matter how much, because I'm going to tell you how to do it based on volume. So you take a jar, fill it about three quarters of the way with uh, lemon balm leaves, and uh, fill that all the way to the top with vinegar, and, uh, you know, let that sit for a couple weeks, and then strain that off. It's good in food and dishes. It's also supposed to be really good for washing your hair. Uh, I've never tried that, but, uh, it is just a killer, uh, vinegar product that it makes, and it, it couldn't be easier than, than put the leaves in vinegar and wait. It also just makes a great tea. So you can experiment with how much to use and mixing it with other herbs, but it's awesome. Coming up to my next one. My next one is peppermint. Um, peppermint to me is like the, one of those plants that, I, it's hard for me to even understand again, why it's not grown everywhere. People say, well, it runs so much it's invasive. Well, that means it lives where other things die. Um, It has always been used for upset stomachs. And it is one of the best things to calm an upset stomach there is. Now, I'm not talking about puking your guts out, stomach virus infected type, I'm going to die, I'm curled over in a ball. Uh, Not that it might not be somewhat helpful for that. But what I'm talking about is for whatever reason, your stomach's just uneasy. Um, You're taking a trip somewhere and you get a little motion sick. Uh, You ate something that just didn't quite agree with you. Maybe you haven't eaten recently and you need to eat, but you don't have time to eat just yet. And your stomach's a little upset. That type of thing, where it's just a little bit of an uneasy, I don't feel good stomach issue. Peppermint usually just knocks it out like that. Um, we always keep some really strong peppermints that come from Holland. I don't know where my wife gets them, honestly, like in the cars and stuff, in case anybody ever feels bad, and it usually works very well. So a, a peppermint tea does the same thing. Uh, I like to use peppermint in just about every tea if I make an herbal tea. I'll throw at least a leaf or two of peppermint in there. Um, I make mint tea like most people make sun tea. I take a big old handful of mint leaf stems... If there's some flowers on it, I don't care. Shove it in a jar, fill it with water, put a lid on it, sit in the sun for a couple hours, uh, strain it off, sweeten it with honey. And you can then drink that as an iced tea or you can warm it up and drink it as a hot tea. And you can make up quite a bit of time. You just have to be careful. You don't leave it too long. It starts to get bitter and harsh if you do. Um, it's definitely good, one of those things it's good to make tinctures out of. It smells great. Um, as long as it has a little bit of fertility and reasonable moisture, it will grow, thrive, and expand. It's something that if you don't want it taking over an area, put it in a pot. You know, it'll grow good in a pot. Propagating it, there's probably not anything that's easier to propagate than mint. If you pick a, a cutting off of mint, strip the leaves off it, and stick it in dirt, it'll root and grow. I mean, it's, it's that easy to do. So... It's one of those things that, you know, right in line with the lemon balm, lemon balm and mint, a little patch of that somewhere, is just a great thing to add to what you're doing on your homestead. Next up is comfrey. I'm not going to talk that much about comfrey. I'm going to reference the show I did on comfrey. I did a show almost two hours long on the benefits of comfrey. I do want to share something with you about comfrey that came in today, though, that I, I thought was interesting. Um, it's it, it's pretty interesting. It comes from a guy named Richard. Uh, it says, Comfrey Feedback. He says, Jack, I want to thank you for introducing me to Comfrey. I'm currently growing Bocking 14 in a pot until we move, and I can get it in the ground. The other day I was burning some papers in a burn barrel, reached to grab a paper that shouldn't have been there and something metal and was hot and, and, and hot was behind it. My middle pointer fingers were throbbing bad and I saw multiple blisters forming. Mashed up a chunk of comfrey root and taped it on my fingers and went back to work. I later put some more on that night and by morning just a glossy skin on my fingers. No blisters, no pain. Amazing properties of this plant. Thanks again. My wife recently had some pretty nasty mosquito bites or ant bites that she had scratched on her leg, and she'd put all kinds of stuff on it, and a couple of them just looked bad. Um, kind of like opens, you know, just not good-looking, especially for a lady. You don't want, you know, your leg to have that on it. So she said, well, let's try the Comfrey. Okay. So it was like in a day the difference was, you know, 100% improvement. It wasn't gone, but it was just unbelievable how fast It worked for wounds on the skin, or strained or broken bones. It is the most amazing plant. Um, I end up at least four to six times a year getting really tore up by fire ants in some way around here, just with what I do on a daily basis. Especially, I use a lot of times I wear flip flops or Crocs and no socks. In the, uh, in the summertime, and sooner or later I'll end up standing in them and they'll they'll do the thing where they get every, everybody in place before they send out the bite signal, and you just get tore up. And if you mash up comfrey leaves and rub it on there, it doesn't immediately take away the, the itch or the pain, but it just kills the inflammation, and you don't end up with these pock marks all over your feet the next day. Um, it does so much. And, again, it's one of those things that if there's some moisture... And, and reasonable fertility in the soil, it'll grow. You want to grow more? You can literally yank it out of the ground, cut a piece of root off, stick it back in the ground, stick that piece of root somewhere else, it'll grow. A one-inch piece of root will grow a new plant in a year, a big plant. Um, even in places like here where most of my is kind of going dormant right now, it's dried up a lot, the geese have grazed on it, it's like it's too hot, dude. I'm quitting for a while. As soon as we get into September and the rains and the cooler weather come, right back away like at Phoenix, out of the ground. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to kill to the point where people consider it a problem. I don't consider it a problem. Um, you can make fertilizer out of it. So I've got I've got to finish a video for you guys I did. I made three gallons of uh, manure tea, green manure tea, and it smells like what it sounds like. It is bad smelling stuff, but, man, it is. It's just an incredible soil fertilizer. Uh, so you got a plant that can heal, uh, a plant that has a bad rap for internal use that I don't agree with, uh, that has a lot of things it can do for you in that regard as well, tracks beneficial insects, provides fodder for livestock if you have it. And this is the thing about comfrey. When we were at Permethos recently, Nick Ferguson and I, we were with a guy up there named John. I won't say his full name because I'm not sure if he wants that released or not. But he fell and he scraped his knee pretty bad on like a... Like a, a track that you use to drive a, uh, like a, like a tractor up into the, uh, onto a trailer. Uh, one of those ones that's like, uh, almost like a cheese grater. He hacked his knee pretty good. And we told him, put some confrey on. He says, you said that about everything. We're like, yeah, no, no doubt. And, uh, he was about, he was running out some leaves and, and, and Nick saw him and goes, dude, wash it first. He's like, oh, okay. And, and basically the reason is it, it, it causes the skin to begin to heal so quickly that, you want to make sure there's no infection underneath it. When you do it, it'll seal over an infection. If there's any kind of dirt or any foreign matter in the cut, it will heal the skin over the foreign matter. It's almost like... The best way I can describe it, it's almost like it chemically cauterizes the skin. It's, it's unbelievable the way this plant works. And it is it is not just... The one chemical in it that is used in all kinds of skincare products and stuff like that, because those skincare products don't do what comfrey does. I feel this is an herb that the medical establishment has and the and the government has waged war on unfairly, whether it's conspiratorial or just incompetence. I don't know. I I lean toward the incompetence side of things and the nanny state side of things, where they just think they're helping but they're not. Um, but it is amazing what this plant does, and. If there's nothing else that you grow on your property, I would say grow comfrey and garlic, because you can just plug garlic. You can go go get some organic garlic. You don't have to buy seed or anything. As long as it's not treated, so it doesn't sprout. Get some organic garlic, and every September, just everywhere you have flower beds and all, plug some freaking cloves in the ground, and one or two spots, plug a comfrey leaf in, and you've got an incredible medicinal and culinary arsenal right there with the garlic and the comfrey. Uh, those are the two that I would say everybody should grow, and um, also very easy to grow. Anyway, the episode on comfrey was 1371. It's well over an hour long, close to two hours long. goes into everything comfrey. If you haven't heard it, you might want to go listen to it. Moving on to um, a really awesome plant, dill. Dill is one of those plants that I think one of the things that hurts it is it's called dill weed, um as soon as you call something a weed people tend to take a lower image view of it it's also so easy to grow that again I think it suffers from the uh, the issue that we have like so if I want to sell something in the uh, in the health and wellness space and it's a fruit right if i say it's a far eastern fruit imported from the Himalayans or something like that. It has this, this, this unique character to it that makes people go, oh, that must be special because it comes from far away. And, and they don't realize that many of the things that we just look at in our backyard and go, hey, look at that, it just grows everywhere here. For somebody else somewhere else in the world, it's far away and exotic too. So it, they don't realize that that exotic you know, mango steam tell a friend who tells a friend who tells a friend you'll all be billionaires that kind of crap it like grows over there to the point where it falls on the ground and stinks up the whole place right it 's that common doesn't mean that it doesn't have really great benefits though um dill has a lot of healing components in it um It provides a lot of protection against free radicals and carcinogens. It's an antibacterial, and it's high in calcium, and it's also high in iron and magnesium, and those things all help prevent osteoporosis. Now, I'm not saying dill cures osteoporosis, and not just because the government won't let me, but because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying calcium, iron, and magnesium are all important nutrients for people that are concerned about reducing the risks of osteoporosis which is absolutely the case I'm not phrasing it that way just to protect myself though I am some that's just actually the case Um, it is usable in a tremendous number of foods, here's some cool ways you can use it if you slice up all those extra cucumbers that you have that you don't know what to do with and mix that with some plain yogurt and dill, that makes a great salad, it's that simple and done cooking fish uh, especially salmon and trout, really, really awesome. It has – some people, when they eat a s- certain fish, especially like salmon and trout, they have this like – they call, say it's like a fishy taste. Well, I would be because it's fish. But I know what you mean, and dill and lemon both have a tendency to, to kind of take that away. It's great for a garnish on sandwiches. Everybody knows about dill pickles. Um, they're also used – it was also used to soothe the stomach after meals. Sometimes you get a big meal, you feel a little bit bloated and, and what have you, you just take a dish of dill seed and set it on the dinner table and just pop a, a little handful and eat them after a meal. It's amazing how well that settles the stomach. Uh, it works good in egg salad, great on chopped potatoes, green beans, things like that. It is one of those plants that, again, because it's so easy to grow and so common, we don't really think about it, but the big thing is that you can use it both fresh and chopped, you know, as, as the plant or the seed. And the seed is dramatically easy to collect with dill. You let the seed form on the top, and then you just take it over a bucket and just just rake your hands across and it. it just flies out of there. Uh, and if you do it out in the garden and you don't really pay a lot of attention to what you're doing, you end up with a great big bunch of seed, and plenty of it lands on the ground. And in most climates, it just comes back by itself every year without you having to replant it. Uh, but you can get it growing just about anywhere. And uh, it it doesn't really inhibit the growth of anything else. And If it's growing somewhere, it it has this fern-like leaf, doesn't block a lot of sun, so it doesn't choke other things out. So it could pretty much be interplanted with just about anything that you would grow. Um, I don't think coincidentally at all, I think uh, due to uh, function stacking, even though they wouldn't call it that. My grandparents always grew dill with the cucumbers. And uh, that's an example of a permaculture technique when no one called it permaculture. And uh, that was simply so that if my grandmother said, I'm going to make pickles today, take a couple buckets and fill them up with uh, with with uh, cucumbers, and I'd go down there and pick the cucumbers for, her, that I could just grab a few stalks of dill right, right while I was doing it all in one bed. And, and that was... You know, always the case. And every fall, I would collect seed from my grandfather from the dill, and I would always just drop some straight on the bed. And we might throw a little bit extra back in the spring to be sure. But basically, dill grew there every year, whether you did anything or not at that point. Uh, and it also had spread into the surrounding banks and things like that. It's just a great herb that's easy to grow that has a lot going for it. And again, I I don't think that people realize how Many of these culinary herbs that we just take for granted—it's just things you cook with—have a lot of antibacterial and antiviral properties to them. Uh, dill is a very uh, antibacterial spice. It has a, the, the oil in it has been studied for its ability to prevent bacterial overgrowth, and it works really well with garlic. And if you start thinking about the way we make pickles today versus the way they made pickles a long time ago. Use garlic and dill and a natural fermentation process, and you have with garlic and dill together something that helps inhibit the potential spoilage during that fermentation process by the things that you don 't want there so you 've got salt, garlic, and dill working together, and then you wonder why a crock fermented pickle is so much better for you than you know something just dumped in vinegar. Um, it still is one of the, th- the things that makes it happen. So the next one I have for you is sage. I'm going to start out with some of the medicinal aspects of sage, and I'm going to start with the herbal actions. Uh, I've, I've, I've kind of not been doing that with most of these herbs um, because you have to know what the actions mean, and I, I, I don't really want to go through all of them uh, with you as I go through all these herbs. But... It does kind of give you a window into what something like common sage actually can do. Antimicrobial, antioxidant, astringent, anti inflammatory, general tonic, and a carmative. Carmative is something that calms the nerves, uh, antiseptic, and antispasmodic. So, sage does all of that. And it's just this weed to most people, honestly. Sage is also a plant that is hardy as all get out. I mean, I've had sage eaten to the ground by insect pests during a stressed time and it just comes back and it doesn't care. Um, the geese usually take a little peck here and there at it. They don't really graze it heavily, but they eat a little bit of it. Uh, they probably don't know that one day they may be rubbed with it and, and roasted. Uh, maybe that's why they're not so keen on heating it. I don't know. But sage is also, One of those herbs that I just don't think really tastes good as a dried herb. It's too intense. Fresh sage used on cooking poultry, used in making sausage and things like that, has this almost citrusy, delicate, earthy flavor. When you dry it and use it, it almost seems to be too much. And cutting back the amount doesn't really seem to help. But either it, it either it, you don't get enough to have the flavor, or if you get enough of the flavor, you get a harshness to it. Um, the smell is amazing. One way it does work good dried is for is just for aromatherapy. And all you need to do is take a big bundle of sage and make a big bundle, almost like a, a loosely wrapped um, cigar out of it and bind it up and... And just keep that somewhere, uh, like a drawer or something like that to keep the place smelling nice. Hang it up in a pantry. But that smell is just good for you at any time, and it lasts a really long time that way. Uh, Certain forms of sage, like white sage, were considered sacred by Native American tribes. It has a huge history of medicinal use. Growing it, it's one of those things, again, it's just so easy to do. It's basically an evergreen shrub. It gets great flowers on. It brings in uh, insects. Insects. Once it's established, it just comes back year after year. If it doesn't you know, get frozen too hard and, and end up having to come back from its root system, most places it will actually just stay throughout the winter, which is nice because it's something you can go out and, and get fresh even in the cold time of the year. Since it reduces sweating... Uh, for women that are experiencing uh, menopausal or perimenopausal, postmenopausal uh, hot flashes, it's it's pretty good, especially mixed with mint at cooling it. It's been studied and shown to help reduce bad cholesterol. It is been used a lot, mixed made basically into a tea and then mixed with some vinegar, apple cider vinegar again, as uh, as basically a hair conditioner. So you wash your hair with it to condition your hair. Uh, a lot of soap makers include sage as one of the the scents that they 'll put into um, a uh, a soap it's it 's just really awesome it 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 really is one of those things that it 's just a food but yet it has all these other properties to it. It is an herb that can be taken to overdose, especially if you 're using like concentrated concentrated herbal formula on it and prolonged use. That's why I prefer to use it in culinary things like sausages and stuff like that. I make my own sausage. It's based on Keith Snow's recipe. Uh, I just made up some yesterday. Um, but I've made my own modifications to it. I'm gonna give it to you here from memory. I might leave something out. Hopefully I won't. Per pound, per pound, I use about a half a teaspoon of Italian seasoning, and the Northern Italian Keith Snow is the stuff that I use personally, but regular Italian seasoning. I use about one teaspoon of fennel. I use about a third of a teaspoon of crushed red pepper flakes. I use about a half a teaspoon of salt, and I prefer to use like a kosher salt or pink Himalayan uh, salt or something to that effect. Um, what else goes in there? About one teaspoon of garlic powder and one teaspoon of onion powder. And uh, that's that's really it. Let me think back through again. No, that's that's it. Oh, duh, sage. Um, fresh sage leaves. I use about four fresh sage leaves, big leaves to a pound. And those are finely chopped. That was the whole reason I started telling the story. And I mixed that up with just ground pork. And that can then be put in casings and made into like an Italian sausage. You might want to up the fennel a little bit if you're doing that. Um, it can be smoked, it can be just used like a breakfast sausage, it can be used to make a sausage stuffing by sautéing it as a crumble, and I'll tell you something that happens. I want you to try making this, all right? I want you to try making this for yourself. If you don't have fresh sage, uh, you could use the dehydrated stuff, but I don't like it. So you can find someone that has some fresh sage or buy some fresh sage leaves. Usually at your markets, they have little clamshells, with certain fresh herbs, and sage is one they usually have. It's a good one to use uh, to get from that if you, if you don't have anything else. I want you to try making this if you if you like sausage, like breakfast sausage and stuff like that. And I want you to look at the, the way that it cooks, and you'll almost wonder, like, what the hell's in breakfast sausage I buy pre-made, pre-made. It gets almost a crispy, crunchy brown to the outside that just doesn't happen with regular breakfast sausage, especially when you do it as a sautéed as a crumble. I, it, it's, it's almost hard to explain. I will tell you this about it. Follow the recipe, adjust it to taste, but if you mix it up and cook it immediately, it doesn't taste as good as if you mix it up, throw it in the fridge, and cook it the next day. I, the, the, the time in the fridge allows all of that flavor to disseminate really through the meat, and it's it's awesome. You can, oh, black pepper. Um, about a half a teaspoon of black pepper to a pound as well. Uh, that, that's the one I left out. So uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll write that. I don't like to write recipes up, but I'll write it up, and I'll include it in the show notes today so that you can get it uh, to make sure that everything's in there because I want you to try this, especially if you buy sausage, especially breakfast sausage. I want you to try this because if you do this and you see how easy it is to do, not only will you grow sage with getting everybody growing something for themselves as part of my evil plan to take over the world, not only will you do that, you won't buy Owens or whatever ever again. You just won't. Because this will taste better, and it's so flippin' easy. You dump all the stuff in, you put the meat in a bowl, you mix it up, you, you separate it into bags or whatever size portions you want, you put some in the refrigerator for the next day and freeze whatever you want for the future, and you're done. It, it takes... 20 minutes to make five, six, seven pounds of this stuff. And uh, it won't have any high fructose corn syrup in it and what have you. And do you have to get pasture raised organic ground pork? No. Um, if you can, great. If not, if you go to the store and buy plain old ground pork, it will cost less than buying the crappy sausage and it will be better quality. It will absolutely be better quality. Um, now, if you start looking around and finding, you know, local producers you may find that pretty good deal on just plain old pork ground pork from all of the parts that they don't cut into chops and and what have you anyway uh, with that let's move on to another herb next one i have for you is thyme thyme is another herb that people know from the culinary sense usually it's a little dried up thyme in those little jars and it just isn't really what it is when it's fresh fresh thyme is so much more than it is when it's dried. It's another one that I really recommend you grow, just so you have it for fresh use. Because all these long little sticks, and you just take them and pull the little leaves off, and the smell's amazing. The flavor contribution's amazing. And I think the reason that so many people underrate the value of these herbs is they haven't tried them fresh. They haven't had them fresh. They don't know the difference. I mean, if you if you make uh, my basic um, uh, what do you call a bruschetta recipe with tomatoes, garlic, a little bit of salt, olive oil, and basil, okay? And you make one with, with with dried basil and you make one with fresh basil and you put them side by side in front of people, there's no question which one tastes better. I mean, it's just obvious. Time's kind of the same way with its contribution to things. Yet, it's also an antiseptic. So, a basic wash made with thyme actually is a good disinfectant and completely safe. It's also used for the treatment of congestion, stomach gas, and coughs. So it's another one of those things that just kind of belongs. it's another it's like a trailing prostrate herb. It grows like a ground cover. and it's one of those things like that if it ends up like growing over a rock or something, And then you got the middle of the day when the rock warms up. And at the evening as it begins to cool and the rock's still warm, it just has this amazing emanating smell that comes out that improves, for me, it improves the quality of my life. When when I'm happy, I have a better quality of life. And when I smell things that smell good, I'm happy, man. Uh, The next one is Calendula. Calendula is one that gets confused by a lot of people um, because of another name for it. And that other name for it is Pot Marigold. And Pot Marigold often has people confuse it with tagaste's family, which is the marigolds that when you go to Home Depot and they have a great big flat of marigolds and they have that interesting smell and they look like little puffball flowers and orange and yellow and mixed colors and uh, they grow anywhere and it's hard to kill them as long as they get some water. Uh, Those are tagastes. Those used internally can be somewhat toxic. Though they do share calendula's role of being good for stings and bites by insects. A common marigold, tegastis miracle. just mash the flour up and rub the residue on a sting or a bite. It has a very anti-inflammatory effect. Calendula does as well. But calendula is something we would call a pot herb. In other words, we can actually eat it. The leaves actually make a decent pot herb for cooking with other greens. It is one of the most amazing plants in the world for your skin. It also has a really good use of things like insect bites, wounds, and stings. It, you know, used it in a tea form. It works pretty good for fevers, infections, uh, and as a tea, as a wash, it has a pretty good effect on varicose veins. Uh, It's another one of those things that you have a hard time screwing up, it is kind of difficult for me to grow due to the heat here. It does not like heat. It likes long, warm days. It likes, it's okay with cool days. It does not like frost, and it does not like super hot heat like 100 plus degrees. So I'll give it another go next year. I didn't do very well with it this year, but I've, I've now developed enough places that are you know, 40 50% shaded, and now they have the soil developed uh, that will give Colangia a go next year. It is an annual. Uh, if, there's a, if there's a downside to it, it's that it's an annual, but it is very easy to save seed from. Four or five flower heads produce a handful of seed. That's hundreds of seeds. So it's very easy to propagate and grow from seed, and it does all these wonderful things for you. It's, it's something that belongs in everybody's backyard as far as I'm concerned, and uh, it is one of the... The best things for wounds when combined with two other herbs we've talked about now. One is comfrey, and the other we talked about in the last show is plantain. If you wanted to make something as a wound salve uh, to help heal, to prevent infection, uh, to, to reduce inflammation and pain, it would be very hard for you to beat using a combination of calendula, comfrey, and plantain. I mean, it, that is kind of like the three horsemen of, of skin problems uh, put together. Uh, they are just phenomenal when used together. A very easy way to make a salve out of them is take equal parts of the leaf of calendula, again, comfrey and plantain, and put them in olive oil. Um, bring that olive oil up to where it's warm. It's not really hot no, you don't want any bubbling at all. Warm to the touch. Where eh, it's quiet. that's quite. That's just about as hot as I want to touch it. Kill it. Put a lid on it. Put it somewhere cool and dark and leave it sit for a week. Strain the oil off the herbs and then heat it up again just enough to melt beeswax in it and melt a, f- a bit of beeswax in it. Let it harden. If it's a little bit, if it's not quite as hard as you want. You know, heat it up again, add a little more beeswax until you get it to the consistency you want it. That is an amazing salve. And, you know, when you talk about becoming an herbalist, there's a lot to it. And good herbalists are amazing people. And they know how to do so much more than that. But that basic technique of making a basic herbal salve is so easy and so effective. And you don't have to go that far. You can just use the oil. The oil will work as well. There's you know, there's tinctures, there's extractions, there's uh perfusions, there's all types of, of ways to use herbs. But that basic warm oil extraction of the, the key constituents, straining off and adding of beeswax to make it to a consistency where I can put it on some somewhere and it'll stay there. Uh that is a tremendously simple yet valuable skill. And it's certainly definitely something you should consider learning, especially if you're growing those three plants, calendula, rosemary, and and, uh, plantain. The next one I have for you is rosemary. Rosemary is the herb that if you you can't grow rosemary, um, you either live in a bog where it's so wet that the roots completely dry out, or you live on a rock where the roots can't get into the ground. Uh, otherwise, as long as you can get a little bit of water to it and get it established, rosemary will grow forever, almost. And uh will grow into from this little bitty plant into the shrub with a, a stalk probably as big around as your forearm or bigger in time. And uh, so it's something you want to prune while young to maintain the size that you want, or you can end up with something that's kind of a monstrosity, uh, though a monstrosity of deliciousness. It is one of the greatest culinary herbs that you could ever have. One of one of my favorite uses for rosemary, and this is about the only time I actually prefer to use rosemary fresh. Uh, all other times, I kind of prefer to use rosemary dried. It's like the only herb I can actually say that about, but rosemary olive oil. And, and, and that's you put rosemary in a container, you cover it with olive oil, and you let it sit for a while, and you use that uh, for cooking, you use it on salads, you use dip, dip bread into it on the occasions that I actually have bread. Uh, I actually like to take rosemary and black pepper and use that, uh, to infuse olive oil for, for culinary use. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And the way I do the black pepper, I feel like the whole peppercorns don't really release themselves into the olive oil very well but completely ground up they kind of lose something so i take a big handful of peppercorns and put it in a coffee grinder a little one of the little hand coffee grinders like you can you can make all kinds of cool stuff out of and then i'll hit that a couple times just brant 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 like that until they're broken but not really ground so they're cracked and they say cracked pepper out of a pepper mill, but pepper mills, even on the course of setting you end up with pretty small pieces of pepper i'm talking about like It's just barely cracked open and just into big chunks and uh, cracked in half about roughly, half to one-third the original size. So that and rosemary and olive oil, just absolutely awesome. Um, You want to do something that really will blow people away. Uh, for like, if you have them over for dinner or something, if you're serving fresh made bread, and if, if you are make sourdough, that really makes bread a lot more digestible. So fresh made sourdough bread, nice and warm out of the oven. Get real butter, not a, not a margarine, and, uh, so you take the real butter, not margarine, and you soften the butter by just leaving it out at a room temperature. By the way, I, when, if I'm going to be using butter, I always keep it some at a little bit, like a half a stick at room temperature, so you don't have that hard lump. But so sit at room temperature, a stick or two of, of uh, butter, and take some crumbled up dried rosemary and mix that into the butter. And uh, there's some other things you can do with that too, uh, like a little bit of dill and the rosemary goes nice together, but just rosemary butter. And uh, that's another thing. Black pepper, though and then you can use your pepper mill on a coarse setting so a black pepper rosemary mixed in a soft butter uh serve that is just unbelievable really it how, how good that is so there's a lot of other things we can do with rosemary culinarily my favorite though would be either on roasted any roasted root vegetable whether it's uh sweet potato believe it or not actually comes out really good with rosemary um turnips Potatoes, anything like that, drizzled with olive oil, sprinkled with dried rosemary, and then baked and roasted that way. Uh, it's just really, really great. Uh, butternut squash is one of those things that people can grow, but yet what the hell do I do with this other than make uh, squash casserole or squash soup? Just sliced up and roasted with rosemary, really, really good, rosemary and olive oil. These are the things, though, when you start using fresh rosemary on these roasted things, to me you get almost like a pine tree taste, which is not really what you're going for. But the, the, the rosemary, when it's dried, is a much more subtle contribution. And one of the ways you can kind of amp it up a little bit is put like half of what you would on it when you cook it and then crumble the other half on it when it's done but it's still hot. And that gives the really kind of because rosemary needles when they're crumbled up and you bite into them they kind of crack and they let the flavor out but it doesn't overwhelm you the way it does uh, when it's fresh. It's it's just a great all around herb and it smells great. Now, what about its use medicinally? It's actually really good for skin irritations like eczema or joint problems like arthritis. It has also been shown to speed healings of wounds and bruises when used externally. So maybe you add it to that uh, salve that I just gave you or the oil I just gave it to you. Um, A tea is actually considered to be a pretty good immune booster. And uh, it's also supposed to be if you mix rosemary and nettle leaf together and make a tea. Be careful with the nettles. You've know, got the stingers on there. Uh, So wear gloves when you work with nettles. But it's also supposed to be really great for people that have chronic dandruff. So you do uh, a tea mixed of half rosemary, half nettle leaf, and then wash your hair with that. It is um, used externally just traditionally in folk medicine during time of illness to just help speed recovery. Whether that works or not is up to debate. Um, but it is a very soothing herb, much like peppermint. Uh, it soothes the stomach. Uh, specifically rosemary oil in it I think it's one of those things that just the smell creates a feeling of well-being. So with rosemary, you know, I, I almost can't help myself when I walk past a rosemary bush in my yard, just grabbing my hand and just running it across it and then just smelling that. And I, I think if you try that, you'll find, wow, well, that's that's pretty cool. It just uh I think that nature basically Exists in a way that's symbiotic with human beings if we'll allow it to be so. That the things that we need for 99% of our well-being just exist in nature. And a lot of our problems are not physical, they're mental and emotional. And if we have enough mental and emotional stress in our lives, sooner or later those things will manifest as physical illness. I don't mean in some weird metaphysical, cosmological way. I mean if you stress somebody long enough, they will have physical symptoms that will manifest themselves as real physical illness. That there are just as many people falling over from a heart attack due to chronic stress in their life as there are to people eating too much you know saturated fats or unsaturated fats, honestly, but the dietary people would tell you saturated fats it, it 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 absolutely is the case that if we have a better health emotionally, then we end up with a better physical health, and that most of the things in life that people convince themselves they can't do are based on a negative emotional state. And and that, to me, when I talk about improving the quality of your life, is a big part of why I'm talking about including herbs in it. And this is something that was just done naturally a 100 years ago. Your grandmother cooked with herbs, fresh herbs. Why? Because she didn't have a lot of money, and they were out there for the taking. And what wasn't just growing naturally could be grown very, very easily. And if she wasn't growing it, her friend Hazel up the road was growing it, or her friend Debbie down the street was growing it. And by the way, when she asked for some of it, they threw some seeds at her. She put them in the ground. She had them next year. And we can just go back thousands of years from 100 years ago, thousands of years back. And every society included certain things in their their medicine, their cooking, and their lifestyles and their diets. And two of those that are missing today, one was fermented foods and the other was herbs. And as I talked about, when we look at something like making sauerkraut, or we look at making something like fermented pickles, or escabeche, escabeche which is a, a Hispanic thing that's basically onions, hot peppers, carrots, and uh, it's just an awesome, awesome thing, and that's a fermented product as well. All of these also have this combination of some sort of herb being used in them, salt and herbs. So. Our ancestors up to 100 years ago ate a lot of salt, but not the way we do, like crammed into all kinds of processed crap. Salt was a, a, a flavor agent and a preservative. They also ate a lot of herbs, and they ate something fermented. And, and those things happened every week. And their emotional state was much better than ours. I want you to think about this. When we look back at the past, we think of the things people did, to get by in life before everybody had a car, before everybody had a switch, you just flipped on your house and lights came on. And we say those people were made of harder stuff than us. They, they, they were tougher than we were. They, how did they survive? I think a lot of modern people, and it's not just the emotional trauma and shock, would have a really hard time living the lifestyle those people did back then. I, I think that what they ate, and their understanding of their relationship with their environment was a big part of the, the way that they were able to cope and do things that we look at and go, I don't know how they, they were able to do that. Back to it though, bee balm is my next one. Another member of the mint family, bee balm is this amazing plant to me. Because again, it's one of those things that like unless you have a black thumb with like a toxic thumbnail on it, you, you really can't mess bee balm up. It just grows. And it spreads like mint. And again, if you're worried about it spreading, you can grow it in a container. The way I grew it when I wanted it to grow right in a garden, I went to uh, either Home Depot or Lowe's and they make this peel and stick stuff that looks like wood flooring. But they're in long strips like individual planks. And I took four of those and I, I you know, un- unpeeled part of the sticky part, the design for them to put down, and I made two rings with them. So each two made one big circular ring, and that gave me about 8 inches of depth. And I dug a trench around the bee bomb, and I put one ring all the way to the bottom of the trench, and I put the other ring on top of the first ring so that about you know a quarter inch of it stuck above the dirt, and I backfilled it. And what this did is it kept the bee bomb from being able to run below or above and spread rapidly. And that way I was able to grow it right in a garden would it have lasted 20 years? I don't know. You might want a little bit more of a garden than that. Uh, but I was able to grow it right in the garden with that. So that definitely, in a place where you're not that worried about it in the, the first place running, would help contain it a little bit if you really want to. I think growing in a permaculture system, let it run. It'll fill the niches that it fills. And it won't fill the niches that it doesn't fill. Ben Falk up in Vermont has it grown all over the place, and it's not a problem at all. It makes a great tea. The uh, it's not a sweet or uh, distinctive tea. It's kind of a closer to regular tea type of flavor. And when I say regular, I mean like your typical cup of tea that you would make with like a product like Lipton or something like that. But softer. It, it does well with other other tea uh, herbs, and it, it's you know when you sweeten it with honey, you're really kind of onto something. And it gets these huge, hairy-looking flowers on it that just end up swarming with bees and other pollinating insects. So it's great at bringing in your pollinators. And... Again, it's one of those things that's really easy to grow, really easy to propagate. You can take cuttings from it, put it in in, in moist soil, and they'll generally root without any special treatment whatsoever. And you can produce as much of it as you want to. And there's different varieties and different colors of it. There's some that are red, some that are purple, some that are mixed colors. And to me, all of it's just awesome stuff. The flowers are also edible. And uh, you can basically pull the little hair-like petals out and use them as a garnish on salads. Um, I've even seen them baked into, like the flowers baked into breads, uh, which is actually pretty awesome tasting as well. The overall flavor of bee balm is like a really muted spearmint peppermint with almost a little oregano thrown in. I, I, it, it's pretty cool stuff. Um, it's not a huge medicinal plant, but it does have some medicinal uses. Um It was traditionally used by Native Americans for quite a few things. Probably the most common was uh, using the wild form of it uh, to help induce sweat and sweat lodge ceremonies. Uh, So it does have that purgative uh, quality to it uh, that helps with detoxification through sweating uh, when used in slightly larger amounts. So it has a lot of stuff going for it. Uh, And again, it's just a cool-looking plant Uh, the scientific name is, uh, Miranda, uh, Miranda, and it is, uh, it is just a great plant to include in your, you know, your gardens and your backyard. The next one most people don't think of is an herb, and it's one of our best herbs out there for a variety of uses, and it's roses. Now, not necessarily the roses that they sell at all the box stores today that are really kind of sanitized out to nothing but a pretty flower, but our traditional roses, our fruiting roses, Rosa Ragusa, cottage roses, and and what have you. Um, the petals have been used for everything from making teas to jams to flavoring foods, uh, all types of different things. They've even been used in cocktails, uh Some people actually kind of flavor milk with it, and then a lot of times that was used in uh, Indian cooking and curries. Um, So there's just a ton of stuff you can do with roses that are beyond just uh, giving them to your girl when you're in trouble, guys. Here are some known actions and uses of uh, rose for uh, medicinal use. Antidepressant, antispasmodic, aphrodisiac, astringent, antibacterial, antiviral, antiseptic. Uh, anti-inflammatory, blood tonic, cleanser, digestive stimulant, expectorant, increases bile production, acts as a kidney tonic, and it can be used as a menstrual regulator. Um, That is all from the flowers, the petals, the rose hips, the roots, the bark, and the essential oils. There are 300 chemical constituents in roses, and only about 100 have really been studied and identified. So there's a lot there that we don't even know. Rose hips are extremely high in vitamin C. My grandmother used to make rose hip tea and rose hip jelly from her roses, which were an old English style of cottage rose. Um, it's been used for treating diarrhea, relieving colic. It's a cough remedy. Uh, rose hip syrup, you can make a syrup out of it. It's very good for cough and uh, is a vitamin C booster. It, it's one of those things that, it's actually used in a lot of things as um, as a product. So, like a lot of cosmetics and things use things like rose uh, rose oil or rose water or things like that. But we don't really think about it. The rose oils, massage oils, et cetera, The the aromatherapy value of rose is very high. But because we've we've taken roses into such a you know a what's the word I'm looking for an ornamental status. We've lost touch with the fact that they're one of the most relied upon and safely used herbal uh, medications in history. And just simple things like a few rose petals mixed with other herbs make awesome teas. Rose leaves actually make a pretty good tea as well. Last episode on this, I talked about how one can make black tea Um, from blackberry leaves, and I said I might try that with wolfberry leaf. It might be interesting to try making the fermented black tea leaf from rose leaves as well it might be an interesting way to experiment. Maybe when I do the wolfberry tea, I'll go ahead and do some rose tea as well. I do have some fruiting rose and r- rosa rugosa growing on the property, though they're pretty young yet and they're not really thriving yet. They're getting through this first summer into uh, establishment. You know, and they're not being taken care of in a, you know, an ornamental garden. They're out in a food forest uh where they're going to be expected to survive and thrive on their own. But rose, again, and, and I want you to understand something. If you have like some hybrid roses or something like that from a box store, I wouldn't really rely on them for any of these uses. This is something to go back to the old world roses, the old school roses, the standard roses. Again, Rosa Ragusa probably being the best among them. And there are tremendous numbers of varieties of Rosa Ragusa out there. The next one is another flower that we think of mostly as an ornamental thing anymore today and for smell, and that's lavender. Lavender is a perennial. It grows incredibly easily throughout most of the United States. Once established, you've got it. It can be used in so many ways that I'm not even going to try to explain them all. I have a wonderful article on uh, Naturopathic by Nature called 50 Ways to Use Lavender that I'll include in the show notes, uh, and you can look that up. But I'm just going to give you uh, a few uses. One, again, it's another one of those things that's really uh, a great tea. It can be used in a lot of cooking. It is a very common provincial herb used in France, Uh, A lot of herbal uh, seasonings that the French use in their cooking contain some lavender flower and or leaves to it. Uh, It makes a great oil, whether you have actually the essential oil, which is an incredible medicinal. If you have actually extracted lavender oil or just an oil infusion, again, using olive oil is probably the best way to do that for less intensive needs, so to speak. It's been used in making liqueurs. Um, a lavender mead is something that's pretty freaking awesome. Lavender actually was at one time a very common used or uh, by beer brewers long before the age that hops kind of took over the whole world um, because it does have this floral character. To the the blossoms, and they use the the blossoms and the leaves, but the leaves actually, when extracted and then used in the brewing process, do contribute some bitterness and when you're brewing a beer, you want to balance the sweetness of the malt with the bitterness of the herbal contribution so along with other herbs, it was used in uh, in, in brewing as well, so it has kind of that history with it, and for many of you it's easier to grow than it is to grow hops. Medicinally, one of its, its best actions is as a nervine, which means it calms the nervous system. It's also a carmative, which means it has an overall calming effect. So it's, it's commonly used in perfumes and lotions and stuff like that, but just from a straight aromic uh, value, it has this ability to have a very calming effect. Now, I know when you hear a survivalist talking about roses and lavender, you're like, dude, what, is this the flower hour or what? But I want you to think about this from a a true survival uh, aspect. When you're in a stressful situation, the nervous system and the mental system go into overload, and having a way to calm those systems down is necessary so that one can actually think and figure out what to do to get through the next situation so let's say that you are concerned about a true major disaster uh, the kind of situation where no you're not going to have the road warrior and whatever, but things are actually dangerous survival day to day is at risk and at some point whether you, you like the fact that this is true or not you have to freaking sleep You have to regain your strength. You have to use your cognitive functioning and things like that. And we live in a world today where when you feel that way, you go to the doctor and they prescribe you some sort of a pharmaceutical. Well, using these herbs like roses and lavender, valerian, St. John's wort, allow one to center the mind – to, to, to calm the neural system, to calm the, the cognitive system to a point where it can actually function well. Your body has this systemic stress reaction, hypervigilance, to get you through an acute situation, but you cannot function that way. Anybody that's ever been in a really scared-as-shit situation where it wasn't just something bad happened, but you had to react... You had to be a better driver than you thought you were, and, and keep yourself from being killed in a car accident, or you ended up in a fight where you thought you were going to lose your life or something like that. Knows that during that experience, time seems to slow down a little bit, and it's because you're operating at this higher functional state, and that when when it's over, you almost have a high. Like a drug high. Like you feel good. It's the adrenaline and the stress hormones, like cortisol coursing through your body, amping you up. But what happens, as soon as you realize it's over, if it was really a life-threatening situation, a lot of times you'll get the shakes. You kind of take it in. You feel a little nauseous maybe. And then you freaking have this energy crash. Like if this if the situation is now safe, what you really want to do, as soon as you get over the amped up state and the mental acceptance of what almost happened, what almost occurred is you want to sleep. you understand that and I, again, if you've ever experienced it, I don't have to explain it. If you haven't, you have to trust me, but if you've experienced it, you know what I mean. you're just spent. you feel like you just spent four days working 18 hour days or something. your body is just shot. Well, that's because it's not, your body's not meant to stay at that state. And that state burns up so much of what you have available that the only thing your body craves after it's over and you're back to a point of safety is sleep. So that it can re... It can re, re, uh, re what's the word I'm looking for? Rehabilitate itself, not not the right word. Recover. So it can recover from that emotional stress. Now, when we end up in these mid-states, between things being okay and pretty good and things being really, really, really amped up. Some guy's got a gun in your face amped up, right? It's There could be somebody with a gun in your face any minute, but there isn't right now. And you exist in this this state in between. It's a prolonged exposure to that same stress hormone amped up state. And sooner or later, it wears you out. It makes you susceptible to in- injury, illness, bad decision making. And as much as you think, well, if the zombies are coming, I'm staying on top of my roof with my sniper rifle, 24-7, 365, you can't do it. If you deprive somebody of sleep long enough, you can practically kill them. You have to sleep. And and you have to make the sleep time you have count. And you have to be able to stop and think. And many of these things that seem like flowery, or you know, like airy-fairy crap are the very things that you'll need because you're not going to have access to the things that normally we rely on for that. So that's why these things actually apply to you as a survivalist, and that's why I think every survivalist should be growing them. The last one is marshmallow. Yes, like the marshmallows that you uh, that you uh, roast over a, a fire and make into a s'more. A marshmallow is, again, the plant that people actually used to make the confectionate thing from. Now they don't really use it anymore for that at all. Um, What it's used for medicinally and has been traditionally used for is treating sore throats and dry coughs. The plant, especially the leaves and roots, uh, have polysaccharides and have an anti tuition and malungulous and antibacterial properties. Basically, that means that it has a soothing effect on inflamed throat tissue. And uh, so that way, a person that has a chronic cough, a lot of times you have that dry, itchy, scratchy feeling in the back of the throat. If it's soothed, it actually suppresses the need to cough, right? So it's not a wet cough where you're trying to – you need something more like an expectorant to get stuff out of the chest. This is a dry cough where you're, you're coughing your throat raw is really what it's really great for. It's also been used in more in, in modern extract form to to, to treat digestive disorders, uh, heartburn, indigestive indigestion, colitis, ulcers, and even Crohn's disease. So it has a lot of potential. The, the big thing is if you if you break it open, you'll feel this mucilage like I'm never going to say that right, and I, I hate to say what it you know what it means, and it's basically a mucus like consistency to it but that's what it is it's like a gooey sticky coating and that has a lot of value again with throat conditions a lot of times if you look if you look up an herbal cold formula among other things and including things like wild black cherry uh, bark it will also include marshmallow very very easy to grow plant Uh, it is a perennial it comes back year after year. It gets bigger year after year. Bigger root systems. You can use both the plant itself and the roots as a medicinal. There's, you know, different ways that you can make preparations out of it, but probably the easiest thing that you can do to use it for colds and flu and sore throats is just make a tea out of it. Uh, it, it's, it's quite good at that. And the tea will also help with heartburn, uh, upset stomach. Digestive troubles, usually really good mixed with some other herbs, peppermint being one of them. It's also a good addition to salves and tinctures for the skin, uh, specifically for uh, if you have sunburn. It's very soothing to sunburn, and it's good for eczema. It's uh, pretty good for uh, hair conditioning as well, and uh, has a traditional use of being used for urinary problems, though I don't know much about that really with it at all, but my understanding is that that's one of the many uses for it. Um, again, tea probably being the easiest thing. The roots were actually used as a food, especially during times of uh, lean times in the past. So if you had a whole bunch of it growing out there, at least you can use it to make food. You probably won't spend a lot of time making your home you know, homemade marshmallows, uh, but believe it or not, uh, it is possible, it is possible to make uh, your own homemade marshmallows. I actually have a link uh, for you to where you can learn how to make your own homemade marshmallows. I figured I would include that because those of you that are holdouts might actually make them because you know you could get your kids involved if you told me you're going to make your homemade marshmallows. So uh, that's the final one for today. And I want you to think about some of the things that I've, I've covered today with this. I've now covered in just this series because I've covered hundreds of herbs in the past some that we've talked about in this series some that we we didn't I've talked about different perennial herbs I've talked I have a whole series on herbal actions there's 40 primary herbal actions there's there's four podcasts where I break down take 10 each podcast and go through them all the entire natural system is this amazing medicinal or a me- amazing medicine case for us if we 'll learn how to use them and learn how to do the things that our ancestors did, there is a lot of hype in the herbal world it 's part of why I love having Western botanicals as a sponsor because uh, as a great source of herbs they 're the people that will tell you when you when you want to know about something yeah that 's something you need to talk to a doctor about that um, you can 't just fix everything you know it 's not like no you can 't eat a bunch of rosemary and cure cancer or something stupid like that, but there 's so many acute conditions that can be mitigated through the use of herbs. And there's so much in our health, I believe, that can be prevented from going wrong through the, the continual daily use of herbs. That's why when I do these, I always throw a lot of culinary herbs in that can be just used in cooking. If you think about it, you should be able to use a few, if you if you picked a half a dozen of these these 24 herbs I've covered now, you should be able to use at least one of those half a dozen a day fresh in your cooking. And if you're doing that constantly, and you're not just, it's not the same, or it's like sage every day, it's sage today, maybe it's rosemary and sage tomorrow, maybe it's basil and oregano the next day, maybe it's a little bit of rosemary the next day, then it's maybe a little bit of dill, and then maybe it's some mint tea, and you're constantly using all these fresh herbs All these medicinal properties, all of these herbal actions that we talk about in a show like this are, are constantly, gently being applied to your body and your psyche and your mental state and your physical state. And you can't help but be more calm, more relaxed, and more fulfilled when you feel good. And I think that herbs really need to be looked at more as a maintenance and preventative measure than an acute response measure. There are some things that can be done with acute response. Again, a wound, a comfrey on that wound will almost always speed the healing. At a level that no, nothing I know of you can buy in a drugstore does it better. Nothing I know of in a drugstore does it as well. So there are some ways that that type of thing can be done. But but more of a tonic type use, I think, has a much broader appeal. And when you compare that to the modern me- medical industry, and, and I'm always the guy that says, if I'm having a heart attack, if i go in an accident I have a yield sign in my spleen, anything like that, please take me to a doctor. A hospital, a surgeon, immediately. There's some amazing things that modern medicine can do. But modern medicine has been largely invaded and corrupted by the modern pharmaceutical industry. And we really need to separate those two, but at this point they're so incestuous that we can't. One of the best-paid professions you can have in America today is being a legal drug dealer, which is a pharmaceutical rep that goes around to different medical offices and doctors and says, make sure you're prescribing Lipitor or whatever the hell drug you're pushing. And it's because we do not have a modern health care industry. We have a sickness and illness and death industry in America today. We we treat sickness and illness and medicate people in the last years of their life right up until their death. And that is the modern pharmaceutical philosophy. Build something that can be used over and over and over again by the same patient right up until the day they die. Get it prescribed to them and get them buying it for the rest of their life. And then make sure that when the, when the, that thing causes a side effect, you make another drug to address that side effect so now you 're selling them two drugs instead of one it 's just like bundling from the phone and cable company, honestly. That is the pharmaceutical industry. I don't want to put doctors down and some of the wonderful things that are done by the medical professionals of the world, but the drug industry is not about curing disease. It's about the treatment of disease, which means they need disease. They have no interest in curing disease because they put themselves out of business. The herbal world is about the prevention of disease and the maintenance of health. And I just had a debate with somebody on the blog about something we talked about yesterday. If you didn't hear yesterday's show, it was basically this. Somebody asked, "Could we create a system of government that works like Kickstarter, where when the government wants to do something, they say, we want to do this, and you voluntarily do or do not contribute to it. And I went through a long soliloquy about how we could do that. It could work. But one of the people that objected to it on the blog said, well wouldn't it make your life more complicated if you had to do many of the things that government does for you right now? And and my overall answer was no. It it would actually be much easier if government wasn't you know, doing so much things to quote-unquote help me. But in the end, what I said yesterday was that the average person doesn't want to self-govern, they don't want to be individually responsible, and they don't want to see and care to their own needs. And one of the ways that's most evident of that is health. We have, the pharmaceutical industry that we have today is a direct response to a consumer that says, when I'm sick, give me a pill. If I'm gonna have to make a choice between a lifestyle change and taking a pill every day, I'd rather take a pill. If I'm too fat, give me a pill that either keeps me alive or helps me be less fat. So the pharmaceutical industry, while I do think they are evil incarnate, only exists because the market for what they're doing exists. And it's because the average person doesn't want to take individual responsibility for anything in their lives. But what I'm telling you is that herbs are one step in the right direction toward taking control and responsibility of your health and wellness. And that that's what we should be doing from a, a, a medical standpoint in this country is a focus on health and wellness instead of a focus on sickness and disease treatment. Why do we have so much sickness and disease? The majority of what people are on medications for today are lifestyle illnesses. A change in lifestyle would remove the illness. Yes, I know I've heard from a couple people that there are a very small number of type 2 diabetics that have, that, that, even if they eat perfectly, they remain type 2 diabetics. I don't care because 99.5% of them are just fat. And if they weren't fat, they wouldn't be type 2 diabetics anymore. I don't know. If I have a freaking disease that might mean one day somebody has to cut my freaking foot off or I'll go blind or my liver will quit and all I have to do is quit being fat and shoving food into my gas bag face, maybe I'll do that. So there's this entire plethora of things that the modern American has to do if they're going to become healthier and above all, take responsibility for their own health. Now, I'm not saying that you can't take responsibility for your own health without putting an herb garden in. I'm not saying that at all, because I don't think that's the truth. If I thought it was true, I would tell you that. I do think that for those of us that will make a little bit of an effort to do that, that it's one step in the right direction, and it can have a very positive effect on your physical health, your emotional health, and your overall symbiotic wellness. There is a phrase used in medicine that's used improperly, and that's what I want to finish up talking about today because it relates to all of this. And it's called psychosomatic. Psychosomatic means mind body. Okay? So the way a person feels is both physical and mental combined. And it's used to say, like, a person that thinks they're sick and isn't really sick is psychosomatic. Or if they had, if they were given a placebo and they got well, they had a psychosomatic response. What they actually had was a psychogenic response. That would be the proper word. A psychosomatic response is every healing response is psychosomatic. It affects both the mind and the body. So understanding that, let me explain it to you this way. Let's say you had an illness and that illness was one that could be treated by an antibiotic. And I give you an antibiotic, and you get well, and you feel better. Modern medicine would tell you there was no placebo response there because you weren't given a placebo. You were given a correct antibiotic for the correct bacterial infection that you had. The antibiotic killed the bacteria. That's why you feel better. The end on It's mechanics. It's 100% bullshit. Because the entire reason we test for placebo response is that the mind-body connection is part of the healing process. And I believe, and I've never heard anybody but me explain this before, that when one actually is taking something, whether it's a drug or an herb or anything, that actually does address the problem, like an antibiotic to a bacteria that do match, as the bacterial count goes down, as the body begins to feel better, Additionally, there's a psychosomatic mind-body response of healing where the body accelerates its own healing beyond what the medication could do for itself. And if you know anything about medical science, you know that that antibiotic doesn't kill all of the infection. It weakens the infection to where the body's own immune system can take over and knock things out. This is why I believe herbal use improves health. Because as long as anything makes you feel a little bit better, the psychosomatic reaction of the body takes the mental control of the body's healing and wellness capability that you have intrinsically within yourself. So can you use herbs other than the ones you grow in your yard? Sure. Do herbs have to be part of this whole thing? No, but I think they're the safest, most gentle option that's available to you. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a cup of herbal tea. Even if you're the most badass survivalist in the world, um, I'm telling you, these types of things help the body. And no matter how tough you are, no matter how skilled you are, in the end, we're all basically the same. We're flesh, blood, and bone. And when our bodies are not in an optimal state of health, we're not as capable as we are when 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 they are in that optimal state of health. And the very crises that we prepare for are the ones where we're most likely to be somewhat incapacitated. And the base health underneath everything helps you deal with those incapacitations, those illnesses, and those injuries. Strong immune systems, strong body, strong mind. I think herbs are a real strong ally in developing that connection. So that's why I... Do quite a few shows where I cover them. Hopefully, you enjoyed today's show. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we we